Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart, um, and welcome. We are What Doctors Don't Tell You. Yes, yeah, so welcome indeed. This is our ninth podcast and vlog. And also for the first time, it's our first Facebook Live presentation. So all you Facebook people out there, hello. Um, and if you are on Facebook and it is live, please do click like and share to spread the word. Um, and those who don't really know much about us, What Doctors Don't Tell You is a magazine. It's an award-winning website and we've been published for since 1989, a long time when we were children. And so we have plenty to say about health and medicine. And so without further ado, let's begin with our first item, which is an incredible story about baking soda, which in the um, UK is called bicarbonate of soda. And researchers have discovered it does the most remarkable things. Doctors have known for a while now that it actually helps with kidney disease. And it is regularly prescribed for that purpose. But researchers wondered why it was helping with the disease and so explored further. And what they've found is it's got even more qualities to it. And specifically, it helps reverse autoimmune diseases and the inflammatory responses of diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. And in fact, they've tested the theory and they found that people who have the disease were finding their symptoms were improving quite dramatically within two weeks of sipping some uh, bicarb of soda every day. And um, they feel it could even have um, benefits even beyond rheumatoid arthritis, certainly with other autoimmune diseases. And what it seems to do is it, it seems to communicate with the spleen, which is, of course, part of the immune system. And the spleen controls the uh, inflammatory response. And it seems to send out a message, so essentially saying, calm down, this, you know, you're not under attack. And it does seem to genuinely work. So it's a, quite a remarkable breakthrough discovery. And it's a perfectly safe thing to take in moderation. We'll talk about how you should take it a bit later, Lynn. What, what? Well, that's it. I mean, when we see some things about from conventional medicine about baking soda, they warn about how it causes stomach upset and all sorts of things. But that's oftentimes when large doses are taken. One of the most remarkable things about this research is that it has to do with tiny dosages, like a half a teaspoon a day in just some water. Um, and of course, what's really interesting is the incredible healing effects of just slightly shifting the acid alkaline balance in the body, because that's really what baking soda is doing. It's alkaline. It alkaline, you know, it creates greater alkalinity in the body. And if you listen to a lot of nutritionists these days, they're always talking about having many more fruits and vegetables and all the kinds of foods that create more alkaline in the body and less acid. And of course, lots of meats and dairy are all very acidifying foods. So really what we don't understand and we're just starting to get is how powerful it is to slightly shift nutrition and what that does to the body, giving the body that big opportunity to heal itself, even of huge diseases like kidney disease or rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, I mean, because it reduces the acidity in the blood, um, they certainly do think it could help with osteoporosis, and it also helps with heart disease. Which, so, so it is quite a remarkable substance. 
Um, and that's, a, you know, so interesting, yeah. interesting thinking about how it could help with uh, osteoporosis, because just think about it a little bit. What are most doctors telling women to do? Drink more milk because it's got calcium. Milk is very acidic in the body, and that's just possibly making the problem worse. Mm. So this is really a nice gateway to a lot of good new theories about how something so small can have such huge effects on health and mm. all manner of diseases. Mm. And of course, the remarkable thing is it was first developed really as a raising agent for breads and cakes. And then subsequently to that, they discovered it's also pretty good at clearing out drains if you add vinegar with it. And it also clear, clears your, your oven. It's a good oven cleaner. So that means you do have to treat it with great respect. And the what you should be doing is taking no more than half a teaspoon a day in water. And the maximum amount is one and a half teaspoons. But if you are over the age of 60, it's definitely one teaspoon only. So you And also you, you let it sort of settle in the water before you sip it slowly. Treat this stuff with respect. But if you do, it seems like it has quite major health benefits. And if you do get some health benefits, make sure to write us in on this Facebook page and let us know what's going on with you. Yeah, so look, that ends our live uh, broadcast with Facebook. So thank you, Facebook people, for watching. Uh, do thank tell you. your friends about us. Uh, we're now going to carry on with the podcast with lots of other items, which will be available uh, shortly. And um, that you can download via our website, which is wddty.com. Uh, so take a look on our website if you haven't anyway, but that from there you can get the podcast and previous podcasts as well. This is our ninth one. And stay tuned to What Doctors Don't Tell You. And thanks again for watching. And thank you, everybody else, for carrying on. Okay, a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. Well, so we've been told for the last 60 years, and indeed, it's still the basis of many weight loss programs and clubs that it's all to do with calorie restriction. And even a mean young athlete like me, who uses the Fitbit, still talks in terms of the calories that I burn every day. And it's an enormous number, as you can imagine. But it's all complete nonsense, of course, because whilst there is no such thing as a calorie as a calorie, it's a complete myth, which was invented by the sugar industry in the 1950s. And it was done at a time when there was heat on the industry. And um, they were pointing the finger at sugar being the problem and causing obesity, which, of course, we now know it does, but that didn't uh, suit the sugar industry too well, so they had to come up with this idea that it doesn't matter where you get your calories from. You can get it from cola drinks and from sweets, or you can get it from lettuce and cabbage, and it's all the same. And um, I think you know, it's blindingly obvious that's not true, and this has been confirmed yet again in the last couple of weeks by researchers who said that there's an enormous difference between a calorie that you'll find in a sugar-sweetened drink and in starch, for instance. And um, the calories in the drink, not surprisingly, will make you obese and increase your risk of type 2 diabetes, whereas the calories in starch won't have any effect whatsoever. Um, so it's a complete nonsense, and as, as I think everyone's sort of intuitively have known, but yet somehow people still bang on about this, as if it's the only measure of weight loss. Well, you know, we have to understand that the whole idea of food being 
energy measured in calories was invented by a guy who actually was an engineer. And so he was looking at the body like a machine. And he saw that certain things created energy with this, machi with this machine, with this engine. So it must be the same with a human body. And of course, it's patently false. You know, our body has such an amazing, unique design. I mean, it's real genius design here that um, it can distinguish all sorts of things. And one of the issues really is about what it turns into sugars and how quickly food gets turned into sugars. So carbohydrates of all varieties get turned into sugars, but it really depends on how quickly they do and different foods um, turn into sugar uh, far more quickly than others. Mm. And of course, refined sugar is mm. the kind of standard uh, thing that turns into sugars the, the fastest. Yeah. And that's the big problem because what you're talking about here is what happens to the rest of the body. When it does turn into sugar, it overwhelms the pancreas, which is controlling insulin, which deals with the sugar coming into the body, and also the liver. So it's not mm. just the pancreas, mm. but the, the liver. Mm. And of course, if there's constant mm. sugar that the body can't handle, it lays that down as fat. Yeah. So that's very different. So the, the speed at which foods get turned into sugars in the body is the real key, mm. not how many calories mm. they have. And of course, that, that is measured by what they call the glycemic load. And um, the higher the GI or uh, glycemic index level of food, the quicker it converts to, to uh, fats and um, causes, causes the health problems. Now, one of the really dangerous things about a calorie is a calorie is a calorie is what most doctors recommend with, say, pa cancer patients. Mm -hmm. Now, we all know that cancer patients lose weight. And they have, you know, as a cancer is taking over more and more of their bodies, they, you know, they oftentimes either mm -hmm. can't eat or they're losing weight naturally. So mm -hmm. doctors oftentimes have at chemotherapy centers cakes and all kinds of mm. stuff like candies all mm. the time now of course what we know we know about you know nutrition and the different foods that feed certain things sugar feeds cancer mm. so it's really really important to distinguish between what foods are helpful for, to the body sure. particularly when you're ill and what aren't yeah it's quite interesting because with we talk about high uh, gi foods but also, um, you know, I'm often stopped in the streets by young ladies saying, you know, how come you have the body of a 20-year-old athlete? <laughs> and the answer is, of course, that it's because I do as I'm told. And uh, what I do, or what I'm told to do, is to avoid all grains because Lynn's on a paleo diet. Yeah. And what we have discovered, that grains, too, convert to sugar very quickly. And so that means rice and, and some, a lot of the breads too. So, I mean, it sounds, sounds like an impoverished life, doesn't it? But it's, there are many, many substitutes and other things you can eat. Uh, but it, it, this really is what it's all about. And it's, it's not that sophisticated, really. But compared to the calorie as a calorie argument, I suppose it truly is. Well, you know, with paleo and lots of other things, we're realising that, you know, certain diets helps certain parts of the body. The paleo really helps the gut because the theory, as the theory goes, you know, humans can't really 
process mm. grains as well as other foods that have been around far longer than grains. Mm. And, so, and particularly since grains have uh, certain substances called ligands, um, which are inflammatory in the gut. Mm. So uh, removing things, certain foods, will have a drastic effect. Mm. And of course, one thing Brian hasn't said is that he's lost a lot of weight on this paleo diet. I did. I said I had the body of a young athlete. <laughs> I made that very, very clear. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it's in, and, and the uh, scientists actually who did this research really zone in on the sugar-sweetened drinks, which again is no surprise. In the UK, there is now a special tax on these drinks. And it seems the courts of America agree uh, because they say the warning labels on these drinks just aren't strict enough. Um, so... There we have it. I mean, enormous common sense, and we hope eventually the slimming industry catches on. Okay, myth-busting number 428. Um, I think most of modern food industry and common wisdom has it that fats in our food make our arteries stiff. By And this is, of course, yet another myth. It isn't true. And a new study has just come out which demonstrate that the stiffening of arteries, which is the first stage of cardiovascular disease itself, um, actually happens because of an inflammatory process, which is something I think we first wrote about 15 years ago. We identified uh, cardiovascular disease as an inflammatory process way back then. But what is interesting about this new study is the inflammatory process itself begins in the gut as it seems almost everything does. Um, the gut seems to be the key to so much of our health or, or ill health. Um, but they um, did a, a test of 617 people where they looked at the, um, the, the bacteria population in the gut, which is known as the microbiome. Um, people who had the lowest diversity of gut bacteria also happened to have the worst arterial stiffness. And, um, you know, conversely, those with the most gut diversity had the healthiest arteries, which is very interesting. Um, and I think it sort of really does take it a step on in understanding heart disease, which is still the number one killer in the West. And to understand that, you know, even that begins in the gut and how healthy the gut microbiome actually is. Mm, and how necessary it is. I mean, more and more as we're investigating, we're finding that gut health is really <laughs> the central issue for pretty much every illness and every condition. And it has an effect all the time, which makes it even more imperative that if you are suffering from any kind of gut abnormality, um, that you clean up your microbiome. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because the gut microbiome actually regulates inflammation, glucose tolerance, and insulin sensitivity, which are all the hallmarks of type 2 diabetes, which again is a precursor of heart disease itself. So, you know, there, there's the link. I'll tell you what's quite interesting about this study as well. It, it gives another nuance because, you know, we all love being medical detectives here. But it has a nuance to it because we sort of say, well, of course, it's... Um, it's all linked to processed foods and sugars, heart disease and so many other diseases are, but actually it, we take it back another step. It's not just that, it is that, but it's also how our guts can respond and process uh, sugary 
foods and drinks. And that's equally as important and sort of also explains why it is that whilst we make a you know, definitive statement saying you know, sugar sweetened drinks will do this, that and the other, and yet for some people they don't. Some of these people seem fine and it could well be because their gut is functioning extremely well and efficiently. Well, that's the thing. I mean, what we have to understand is that what we put in our mouths all the time drastically changes that little gut population. Mm. So it's not just how your gut responds, but it's what bacteria are there. And if you do have a bad diet of, you know, of uh, processed foods all the time, you have drastically changed your microbiome. I mean, there's lots of other things that insult it. I mean, mercury and, you know, mercury in, in teeth is possibly one of the, the biggest um, uh, aspects of creating uh, an abnormal microbiome. It mm. has an incredible, I mean, that's been proven for many years on animal studies showing that um, mercury in the mouth drastically changes the gut's ability to fight off uh, bad bacteria, and it even makes it antibiotic resistant. So we know that there's a, a major effect of heavy metals like mercury. It's not just mercury, it's some of the other ones, and how they set you up for gut dys dysbiosis and situations where you are just, you're not only not processing food very well, but you're also leaving yourself open to all kinds of bacteria, yeasts like candida, and parasites. So it's more and more important to look at what you put in your mouth and to understand how that's going to have effect on, on the gut and all manner of degenerative diseases, mm. which start there. Yeah, and I think uh, it's um, still in the early stages. We're still beginning to understand these processes. And also we need to understand, you know, how this happens in the first place. And you mentioned mercury. Many, many things do affect the gut microbiome. Drugs do. Um, stress does. Environmental pollutants might. And uh, yeah, I don't think we're going to be a million miles away from the day when we actually go down to have a regular gut check to see how the, the gut's performing, because it really does seem to be the key uh, to, to most everything. Absolutely. You know, the famous saying went, uh, death begins in the colon, and that's absolutely the case. Mm -hmm. And so it's more and more argument for making sure you have plenty of probiotics, um, including things like kefir, um, which has really been shown to do all kinds of things uh, in regulating and re recreating the bacterial content in the gut. And that you, as you say, um, that you regularly check out. And particularly if you've been to foreign countries, you know, there's plenty of herbs out there, herbs in America, that can help prevent your coming home with a lot of unwanted guests. Okay, following on from the previous item about, about uh, gut health. So gut health part two. Uh, we were saying earlier about the key of, of, of a healthy uh, gut and its, its impact on many aspects of health. And, you know, what do we do about it? You know, uh, we sort of spoke a little bit about what causes it, but what can you do to reverse it if you suspect that's the problem? Well, researchers have looked at that as well, or have started to look at that, and they've discovered that if you actually fast for 24 hours, which is not an enormous of a long time, it actually kickstarts all the good gut bacteria and um, gets you back 
towards better health. They seem, they're saying they've tested it in the over-60s. I don't know whether that, therefore, it doesn't work in the under-60s. God only knows. But they've done it with the over-60s and say it does seem to work with them. And um, so it's... Um, it's something that um, is certainly worth exploring. It seems that after you've fasted, our cells, cells start to break down the fatty acids instead of glucose or blood, the blood sugar. And this metabolic switch is enough to start the regeneration of stem cells. And these, in turn, have all, all sorts of good impact on our health. I think they probably tested it on the over 60s because... As you age, your ability, your gut's ability to generate those stem cells declines. Mm. So they were looking at a population that's struggling a little bit with this anyway. Mm. And it's so interesting, Brian, because, you know, more and more we see that these short fasts mm. are really a key to helping kickstart the immune system or replenish the, the immune system and all of the things that go with it, including things in the gut. Mm. Um, certainly, they've had plenty of studies on arthritis showing that a little fast mm. really can, you know, can um, just give the immune si system some sort of boost mm. to get it to, to fight the inflammatory processes. Mm. Mm. I mean, and also it's slightly uncomfortable unsure what what they mean by a fast i must say do they mean no food at all and mm -hmm. in which case only liquids i know for longer fast they talk about minimal amounts of food but don't say exclude food completely but for a 24-hour fast it could be that it's just liquid only for for that time i i would reckon that it is liquid I and mean, mm. it might be a juice fast yeah but that they're really talking about just giving your gut a break mm. in order to get it to sort of regenerate and also when you deprive the bad bacteria of food mm. they die quickly mm. i mean that's one reason why a paleo diet is so helpful mm. for people who are trying mm. to um, heal some sort of condition mm. they find that you know that's cutting out a lot of the foods certainly all of the sugars that feed the bad guys mm. and the good guys then thrive on it yeah and i think there's been quite a lot of research into fasting there's the university of california has made a made a specialty of it and they've found that it's helped with any number of diseases from inflammatory diseases even through to some cancers that fasting has a key role to play in reversing these conditions hmm. another situation that the drug companies can't patent okay the opioid epidemic especially in america is a, a, a concern a national concern and um you know, we're seeing so many young people die now um, as a result of direct result of opioid addiction or misuse. Uh, one study, I think, has found that now it's one in five young people who die, die as a direct result of the drug. Um, and the situation is obviously, it seems to be escalating. It's not getting any better right now. And what is particularly worrying is that uh, a new study has discovered that drug companies have actually been bribing doctors into prescribing more of the drugs. So rather than playing a, a role in trying to stem this uh, epidemic of addiction, they're helping to fuel it. So bottom line comes first for Big Pharma. A bit of a shock, that. No one expected that, but apparently that's what's going on. Um, they, uh, a research study found that doctors who are accepting bribes or kickbacks from the drugs 
companies and these brides could be anything from a free meal to travel to exotic location through to uh, lucrative consulting fees in inverted commas. They're writing around 9% more prescriptions for an opioid than doctors who don't accept these bribes. And um, the drug companies who manufacture the painkillers are spending more than $9 million a year in encouraging the doctors and inducing them to prescribe the drugs. And, you know, it's, it's a scandal. It's an absolute scandal. And, um, you know, drug companies have to step up here and accept their social responsibility that this is an epidemic of which we've not seen in, in many a year. I find it so outrageous about what's going on in America, particularly about this kind of wholesale ability of the drug companies to make, basically do what they want. It's capitalism unleashed, basically, um, you know, and the consumer be damned. Um, recently, I just read in the New York Times that there are uh, they are looking. The Food and Drug Administration in America is looking to make it even easier to put drugs to market, supposedly to help those patients who really need the drugs. And they're now talking about doing away with uh, the necessity of having, you know, the gold standard type test, the double blind trial, and even of not having not uh, having uh, full clinical trials on these drugs, just getting them out to market. And I mean, this demonstrates once again that there are no controls. The Food and Drug Administration can't be relied upon. The government can't be relied upon to control the drug industry. And it needs to be consumer-led now for consumers to say enough and to fight and step up to fight the tendency for doctors to always answer pain with an opioid. Mm. There are plenty of other ways to deal with pain that are far safer. Mm. Acupuncture comes to mind. Mm. But lots and lots of other ways to deal with it than an addictive drug. Mm. And it's worth it if you wanted to find out more. In fact, in our next issue, our uh, July issue, talks about natural ways to switch off pain. So look out for that if you do want more information and you want more help. Uh, because you know, that something has to happen here. Absolutely. Okay, what happens when a baby is born? Mother-in-law comes around. And the other thing that happens is there is a barrage of tests that the poor young mite has to endure uh, for testing all sorts of strange things like cystic fibrosis, sickle cell disease, uh, and the rest. And the doctors love it. They like to make a pincushion of our newborns, but the trouble is that all these tests are unscientific, they're inaccurate, and a complete waste of time. That's according to a new study that's just taken a look at the test for, uh, for the newborns. In fact, they're so inadequate, these tests, that um, the researchers recommend they should be scrapped everywhere. Um, in the US and the UK and everywhere else where they're still being performed. Um, interestingly, about uh, half the countries that had been using the test have already abandoned them anyway. So it seems to make sense that maybe everyone else should follow suit. Well, you know, I think this really is a bigger issue about tests given to pregnant women 
and tests given to newborns. Mm. Um, there are some tests that are really important and vital, and other tests, and I'm talking about tests for you know during pregnancy, and a lot of other tests that are very, very inaccurate, and mm. so inaccurate that they just cause alarm and upset. Mm. And I think this is each of these tests. You know, I'm thinking about some of the blood tests, like the early, I mean, we had a situation like that where we had an early blood test for our first child. Mm. Um, and just our doctor convinced us that this was a great way to see whether or not she had Down syndrome. And she came back as borderline Downs. And we then sat down and had a lot of heart to heart about, do we take it to the next stage, which is amniocentesis? synthesis, which carries a percentage risk of miscarriage. And suppose she had been perfectly healthy and we ended up miscarrying her because of the test. Mm. So we decided, well, what are we going to do about this? If she is Down's kid, we're not going to board her anyway. So why are we going to have this test? Mm. And we ended up not having the test, never talking about it again, and out came a normal, healthy baby. Mm. Um, but it put us through a lot of unnecessary worry. And so I think that what's really important is to ask questions of every single test you're going to be given, whether it's in pregnancy or after birth. Um, is this in your family? If it isn't, if cystic fibrosis and some of those other things don't run in your family, then why have the test? If there's anything that looks, does this baby look ordinary and healthy? Then think twice about having the test. If the child, something looks wrong, then okay, the, investigate. But really ask those kinds of questions first and assume health mm. rather than disease. Mm. So throw out the bath water of tests and keep the baby. <laughs> I like that, Brian. Okay, so on which note, say goodbye. I'm Brian Hubbard. I'm Lynn McTaggart. And please look us up on wddty.com and check us out in the newsagents or even better yet, subscribe. Thanks for listening. Thank you.